These are my observations, and this is my analysis. There have been two waves of injury to the world. The first has been the SARS-CoV-2 infection, which preyed upon the frail and the elderly. And then the second wave of injury now has been the COVID-19 vaccines. The role of the WHO appears to be adverse in both of these. The role of the WHO appears to be operating within a biopharmaceutical complex, a syndicate, a complicated syndicate that has formed over time. It includes the WHO, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, Gavi, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, that Gates Foundation and the WAF formed largely. The Department of State in the United States, the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, the FDA, the MHRA in the UK, the TGA in Australia, SAFRA in South Africa, the EMA here in Europe. This grouping of non-governmental organizations with governmental public health agencies is operating as a unit. They're carefully coordinated. And the impact has been adverse. At the outset of the pandemic, there was an investigation by the WHO on the origins of SARS-CoV-2. That's when the beginning of the cover-up began. Rear Admiral J Brett Gerard in the United States nominated three independent scientists to go to Wuhan and figure out what was going on. We knew at that time, and this has all come out in, in, in uh, congressional uh, uh, hearings, that Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, Jeremy Farrar, who was at the Wellcome Trust, who's now the chief scientist at the WHO, Christian Anderson at Scripps, Edwin Holmes in Sydney, Peter Desick at the EcoHealth Alliance, they all conspired in January of 2020 to cover up what they knew, that the virus was engineered in a joint U.S.-Chinese collaboration in the lab in Wuhan, China. And they deceived the world with 12 subsequent fraudulent papers in the peer-reviewed literature. These were quarterbacked by Jeremy Farrar, who is the chief scientist at the WHO. This is all in the series of reports in the House Select Committee in the United States by the U.S. Congress, uh, led by uh, Representative Brad Winstrup. The WHO has played an adverse uh, uh, role from the very beginning, deceiving the world on the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Doctors like us in clinical practice got behind on this because our governments and agencies like the WHO weren't honest with us. And instead of helping us, or at least getting out of the way in terms of treating patients and saving lives, they got in the way and they impeded our ability to treat patients. They effectively created an entire environment of therapeutic nihilism. There are only two things that prevented hospitalization and death. One was early treatment early on, and then the second was to acquire natural immunity with the first episode of the infection. Nothing else worked. There are only two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. To this day, the WHO does not support, embrace, or promulgate early treatment protocols for patients with acute COVID-19. That should tell you something.
That should be a wake-up call. We're going on three years of this. Three years of this. And still nothing to reduce human suffering from the WHO. Nothing. In fact, efforts that enhance human suffering. Because the first wave was the illness. And I've testified in the U.S. Senate multiple times. The majority of hospitalizations and deaths were completely avoidable in the highest-risk patients with early intervention, starting with virucidal nasal sprays and gargles, and then intravenous and oral drugs administered at home to get people through the illness. Now enter the vaccines. Since 2021, the vaccines have ravaged the population in the world. Worldwide, two-thirds of people took a vaccine. The United States COVID community state study shows 75% of Americans took a vaccine. Thankfully, 25% didn't. I was the only public health and public figure in the United States in writing to question the vaccines before they came out. And I did it as loudly as I could. The COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, 94% of Americans took a messenger RNA vaccine. It is the genetic code for the potentially lethal spike protein part of the virus. It was the worst idea ever to install the genetic code by injection and allow unbridled production of a potentially lethal protein in the human body for an uncontrolled duration of time. Everything we've learned about the vaccines since they've come out is horrifying. There's not a single study showing that the messenger RNA is broken down because it's pseudo-uridinated. It's made synthetically. It cannot be broken down. There's not a study showing it leaves the body. We now have papers by Castriuta who demonstrates the messenger RNA circulating for a month. That's as long as they've looked. We have the spike protein, the lethal protein from the vaccines found in the human body after vaccination circulating at least for six months if not longer. And if people take an injection in another six months, there's another installation in more circulating, potentially lethal protein. The spike protein is proven in 3,400 peer-reviewed manuscripts to cause four major domains of disease. One is cardiovascular disease, heart inflammation, or myocarditis. Every regulatory agency agrees the vaccines cause myocarditis. I'm a cardiologist. Before COVID, for years, we've had guidelines in cardiology. When there is myocarditis, whether it's symptomatic or not, people cannot exert themselves in athletics. It will cause a cardiac arrest. And yet across Europe and across the United States, sports leagues were injecting young people who had no medical necessity, no clinical indication with these vaccines. And we have seen a montage of cardiac arrests in young individuals. I'm telling you as an expert cardiologist, these cardiac arrests are due to the COVID-19 vaccine until proven otherwise. They are. Other cardiovascular diseases caused by the vaccine proven. Acceleration of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and heart attacks or cardiovascular arrest. Posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS or people passing out due to low blood pressure. You have seen montages of people in the media one after another passing out like you've never seen before. It is the vaccine until proven otherwise. Aortic dissection, atrial fibrillation, 
other arrhythmias. Cardiac arrest in the absence of myocarditis has been described with the COVID-19 vaccines. The cardiovascular domain of damage in the human body from the vaccine is substantial, more than anything we've ever seen with cholesterol, high blood pressure, or diabetes. The second major domain is neurologic disease, stroke, both ischemic and hemorrhagic, Guillain-Barre syndrome, ascending paralysis that can lead to death, which it has led to death with messenger RNA vaccines, uh, agreed to by our, all of our regulatory agencies, small fiber neuropathy, numbness and tingling, ringing in the ears, headaches. These are common. Third major domain, blood clots. Blood clots like we've never seen before. The spike protein is the most thrombogenic protein we've ever seen in human medicine. It's found in the blood clots. The spike protein causes blood clots. Blood clots larger and more resistant to blood thinners than we've ever experienced in human medicine. I have patients with blood clots now going on two years, and they are not dissolving with conventional blood thinners due to these vaccines. We can't get these out of the body. We can't get the messenger RNA or the spike protein out of the body as is continually produced. Fourth and last domain, immunologic abnormalities. Vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia and multisystem inflammatory disorder are early acute syndromes, uh, well-described, published. They have their own acronyms, all agreed to by the regulatory agencies. So all of you in the room and all of you listening online are asking, is it me? Is it my family member? Is it my loved one? Who is going to be the next person to drop after a vaccine? We've seen cardiac arrest now two years after these shots. Two years. I'm the senior author on the largest autopsy study ever assembled of death after COVID-19 vaccination worldwide. We searched the literature, 600 papers, all the clinical findings, we reviewed them with contemporary knowledge, experts in pathology, and clinical medicine. Our conclusion, 73.9% of the deaths after vaccination are due to the vaccine. They are due to the vaccine. When it's suspected myocarditis, in a second paper, of which I'm the senior author, it's 100% of the time. It's due to the vaccine. Not COVID, respiratory illness, the vaccine. We are seeing now a third false narrative the first false narrative was that the virus is unassailable. We have to stay in lockdown and be fearful. The second false narrative is take a vaccine. It's safe and effective. The third false narrative now is it's not the vaccine causing these problems. It's COVID. It's COVID that we saw back in 2020 causing all these problems in 2023. Don't fall for the false narrative. The medical literature at this point in time is compelling. The Bradford Hill criteria for causality have been fulfilled. The vaccines are causing this enormous wave of, of illness. Now, could it be you and your family member? A few important papers to finish. One is by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark, demonstrating that about 30% of people who have taken a vaccine have zero side effects, nothing, not even a sore arm, not even, not even a sensation that anything happened with the injection. Those people appear to be fine forever, as if they didn't take a shot. And the, same, the data are the same in the United States in our VAR system. The second batch 
batch group is about 70% of individuals, and they have some moderate side effects, some trouble, but they don't seem to really uh, have serious events. And then there's that small third batch group, 4.2% in the Schmeling data. It's through the roof. Myocarditis, cardiac arrest, blood clots, hemorrhagic stroke, disabilities, sudden death at home in bed. And the data are the same in the United States. 4.2% of people in Europe right now are in trouble because they were unlucky enough to get a high-risk batch. In the United States, our CDC vSafe data, which is self-reported data, 10 million Americans, the number is 7.7% got so sick with a shot they had to go to the hospital and be treated or, and or be hospitalized. A Zogby survey done about a year ago a big representative sample in the United States found 15% of those who took a vaccine have some medical problem that they're dealing with right now. So again, 4.2%, 7.7%, 15%. That's the penumbra. That is the Venn diagram that you're, you're all going to be involved in the calculus. What's the path forward? The path forward is clearly for no one to take another shot. No one. Now, the World Council for Health, which is a multinational evidence-based physician and healthcare provider organization, on June 11, 2022, issued a pharmacovigilance report looking at 39 safety databases, including the, uh, the, the WHO VisiSafe and the uh, EMA databases in the U.S. databases, and their conclusion was to remove all the COVID-19 vaccines off the market for excess risk of death. Excess risk of death. Okay. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, December 7th of 2022, I co-moderated a session, and our expert panel by assent in the U.S. Senate concluded all the COVID-19 vaccines should be removed from the market, all of them. No new boosters. And then in March 23rd of 2023, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, a fact, factual, fact-based, evidence-based, consensus-driven organization, just like the two others, also concluded to remove the vaccines from the market. So I submit to you the COVID-19 vaccines and all of their progeny and future boosters are not safe for human use. I implore you as a governing body, the European Medicine Agency, to apply all pressure and due urgency to remove the COVID-19 vaccines from market. In the United States, it's going jurisdiction by jurisdiction, probably state by state will remove them off the market if the federal government doesn't do so. It's going to happen. It's going to happen all over the world. The WHO is standing behind these vaccines they are far more of a problem than a help to the European Union. And it's my belief that the European Union, the United States, and all major stakeholders should actually completely pull out of the WHO and leave the WHO to its own endeavors uh, not to have any jurisprudence, any dominion over what we do in healthcare. WHO will never have dominion over what I do as a practitioner. Uh, with patients in my practice. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for having me. 
He's actually joining us from Strasbourg, France, where he just spoke before Parliament there yesterday. I listened to the address, um, Dr. McCullough, and you so excellently laid out the evidence. So before we get into to more, I, I want to play another very compelling clip from your address talking about the detrimental effects of the vaccine. Let's take a listen. Everything we've learned about the vaccine since they've come out is horrifying. There's not a single study showing that the messenger RNA is broken down because it's pseudo-urogenated. It's made synthetically. It cannot be broken down. There's not a study showing it leaves the body. We now have papers by Castriuta who demonstrates the messenger RNA circulating for a month. That's as long as they've looked. We have the spike protein, the lethal protein from the vaccines found in the human body after vaccination circulating at least for six months if not longer. And if people take an injection in another six months, there's another installation in more circulating, potentially lethal protein. The spike protein is proven in 3,400 peer-reviewed manuscripts to cause four major domains of disease. You laid out your case, Dr. McCullough. How was it received, and what exactly are you asking these lawmakers to do now after your address? You know, we had the full attention of the European Parliament. It was a terrific session, lasted hours. There were uh, four civil liberties attorneys ahead of the medical presenters, five medical presenters, uh, U.S. European contingent. And, and I can tell you, they were given very specific uh, instructions. One is to withdraw all the COVID-19s off uh, vaccines off the European market. And number two, uh, to withdraw uh, the European Union from the World Health Organization. The WHO is behind pushing these vaccines. Anthony Fauci is a key member of boards at the WHO pushing this, as well as the Chinese CDC director, Dr. George Gao, uh, Bill Gates. Uh, they are operating in what we call a biopharmaceutical complex, a syndicate. The top public health officials from the UK and, and uh, uh, Denmark have just joined Moderna. Uh, so they are rewarding each other with uh, positions after their work in public health. Uh, people around the world have been tremendously injured and damaged by these vaccines. They need to be pulled off the market. And I can tell you, it's not just me. Uh, the World Council for Health, uh, June 11th, 2022, called to pull these off the market. And then the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, March 23rd, 2023. So two fact-based, evidence-driven uh, physician consensus organizations are calling for removal of the vaccines from the market. And, and it, when we're looking at governing bodies and we're talking about pulling these shots off the market, what you're suggesting for the European Union could also be done, say, state by state here in the United States, correct? If you had some brave governors step forward. It's true. It could even happen by uh, precinct by precinct, uh, legislative district. Uh, we, we're seeing tremendous efforts occurring in Idaho uh, as well as in Florida. Uh, these vaccines uh, are under emergency use authorization. There is no public health emergency now. Uh, there are over 3,400 peer-reviewed papers describing injuries, disabilities, and deaths. Fauci has it wrong. 
there were no serious cases of COVID myocarditis before the vaccines. There were none. There were a handful of cases that were inconsequential. Once the vaccines rolled out, we had a tsunami of vaccine-induced myocarditis, including fatal cases. I'm the senior author on the largest autopsy paper demonstrating that COVID-19 vaccine myocarditis is fatal in some individuals. It is the cause of these uh, montage of cardiac arrests we're seeing in athletes until proven otherwise. Real quick, we have about another minute, but I wanted to get to something that you tweeted out um, earlier today related to the Mina Sherry papers and how they relate to the origins of COVID. You say that there needs to be an investigation on these papers, uh, specifically the creation of the SARS-CoV-2 prototype Chimera in 2016. Can you just explain as quickly as possible? I know I threw this at you, but I think I, I wanna get this to our audience. These papers are the proof that Fauci, his NIH division, Francis Collins, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and all the investigators, as well as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they created SARS-CoV-2 in this prototype format. They published it in 2016. These papers have been buried by Fauci, by Collins. They've been overlooked by Senate and congressional committees. They need to come forward. These papers describe the gain-of-function research and creation of the virus that got the whole world sick. Well, we'll see if that happens. But yes, there does need to be an investigation. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, for taking the time to join us while you're overseas and, and, and trying to uh, get action from European lawmakers. And I'll remind our audience that you do often post what you're working on and the latest information to your Substack Cour Courageous Discourse. And you can find that at PeterMcCulloughMD.com and subscribe PeterMcCulloughMD.com. Thanks so much, Dr. McCullough. It's great to catch up with you and thanks for what you're doing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to American Thought Leaders Now, our special news-focused spin-off series of the original American Thought Leaders program. Today, our very special guest is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Yale University. Dr. Rish, so good to have you back. Pleasure to be with you. A lot of people know of your work early in the pandemic on around hydroxychloroquine. It's amazing actually that a lot of people don't know that you are actually, uh, your professional work has been in the realm of cancer. And um, there's been a lot of discussion. There's been the rise in what are, have been dubbed turbo cancers. And so what is the reality of this situation right now? Well, the reality is that there's indications that cancers are occurring in excess in people post-vaccination. Now, do we have proof of that? Not really, but there's data and observations that are consistent with that. So for example, I tried to get a clinic appointment in, in an oncology clinic in a major metropolitan area in the United States, you find that the appointments are backed up that it could be months rather than weeks to, to get an appointment. I've heard this from a, a few places. The idea that a new product like the vaccines could cause cancer is not something that's gonna be observable overnight. That cancer as a disease takes a long time to manifest itself from when it starts, from the first cells that go haywire until they grow to be large enough to be diagnosed or to be symptomatic can take anywhere from two or three years for the blood cancers like leukemias, lymphomas, to five years for lung cancer, 
to 20 years for bladder cancer or 30, 35 years for colon cancer and so on. So these are long-term events and if you have suddenly introduce a new product like the vaccines, the first thing you might expect to see would be the blood cancers that I mentioned, but not the other kinds of cancers. And so what clinicians have been seeing, however, is very strange things. For example, 25-year-olds with colon cancer who, who don't have family histories of the disease. That's basically impossible along the known paradigm for how colon cancer works. And, and other long latency cancers that they're seeing in very young people. This is just not the normal occurrence uh, of how cancer works. And so there has to be some initiating stimulus to why this happens. In my opinion, cancer is something that the body normally fights off because the cells that get created when they go haywire, the immune system mostly recognizes and is, manages to gobble them up or disable them so that they don't progress. But if you damage the immune system in a way that limits the ability to recognize or to disable newly growing deranged cancer cells, then that opens the door to them multiplying to the point where it's beyond the immune system to cope. And that's the mechanism I think that's the most likely here. That we know that the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, have done various degrees of damage to the immune system in, in a fraction of people who've taken them. And that damage could be anywhere from getting COVID more often, getting other infectious diseases, and perhaps it may also be cancer in the longer term. So we're seeing these long latency cancers. We're also seeing cancers like breast cancer. So breast cancer typically is a disease when a, a woman has a detected lesion, a spot in, in the breast, and that's removed or biopsied. And then it, it's treated and it goes into remission and sits around quiescent in the body for 20 or 25 years before it may recur. Mm. And then what we're seeing is, however, vaccinated women who are suddenly, in short, relatively short periods of time, re-manifesting their quiescent breast cancers. That's in the realm of possible, just like the, the blood cancers could be in the time frame of two or three years after the vaccines. So those are the initial signals that we've been seeing. And because these cancers have been occurring in people who are too young to get them, basically, compared to the normal way it works, they've been designated as turbo cancers. Some of these cancers are so aggressive that between the time that they're first seen and when they present, can they come back for treatment after a few weeks, they've grown dramatically compared to what oncologists would have expected for the way cancer normally progresses. And so that's part of the motivation for calling them turbo cancers. We don't know how big this problem is. It's not certainly not universal, but is it a real problem? Potentially, yes. And so one needs to be just cognizant of it and paying attention to of it. And as the American Cancer Society has said for so long, be attuned to your body, that any changes that don't make sense to you in your body, follow them up. That's the best recommendation. So there isn't population level surveillance on this? Because you would imagine that, that there probably is very good population level surveillance on this. The problem is connecting the cancer occurrence to the vaccinated state. That the population surveillance for cancer is good because cancer is a reportable disease. It's 1933 in Connecticut anyway. And, but knowing which people have been vaccinated and when they were vaccinated compared to the cancers is very weak data if, if it exists at all. So there might be reports in the VAERS database about cancers, but again, if this is happening two years after vaccination, 
how are you going to lay the claim that this was caused by something two years in the past? It's, it's difficult to make those connections. Fascinating. Well, the other the other issue is you know you mentioned breast cancer you know coming back that that was treated in some way at some point, but there was also this whole phenomenon early in the pandemic that a lot of this kind of surveillance type work or just as assessing mammograms that kind of so it was simply not done right because the hospitals were locked down right and so how much would that play into this the turbo cancer question? I think that it's unlikely to affect the turbo cancer question, it's more likely to affect a, a bump in cancer diagnoses after the lockdowns were lifted and people were more psychologically prepared to go back into public spaces and clinics um, and make their appointments and, and, and attend their appointments. So there would have been a, a bump, a wave in that period, but not long stretching into now, you know, years later. I think that, and the behaviors of the cancers, as I said, they're more aggressive, is something that would be unexpected and, and not related to that. I just want to talk about this, the vaccinated, the data on whether someone's been vaccinated. There was, you know, uh, from what I understood at one point, um, there was somewhere, there's kind of a range of how vaccinated, whether someone's been vaccinated was defined, and it was anywhere between well, zero to three weeks after the act, the actual shot was given, that they would be marked as vaccinated. I think two is kind of the most common number that I hear. Two weeks, um, and you know, presumably we have data on who has actually gotten the shot. Right? Well, not really. So okay. if if you go to hospital for some procedure and the hospital looks up your medical record to see if you've been vaccinated. The data in the chart will be, there's a checkbox for vaccinated and a checkbox for unknown. And the reason it says unknown is because the hospital only captures the fact of vaccination for people who got their vaccines in the hospital or in a clinic that's related to the medical care system of the hospital. And there may be information elsewhere in the chart, like in a text box somewhere that says patient received vaccines at such and such date, but it probably or may not populate into the, the box information about vaccine status. So it's murky, it can be murky. As to the question of when is a person vaccinated, this is a, one of the great misrepresentations of COVID, and that is when you're studying the efficacy of an agent, if it takes a few days to weeks before an agent becomes fully effective, then it's fair when you're looking at the effectiveness of the agent to say, okay, so we'll not count you as vaccinated for two weeks until the vaccine ramps up its ability to be a vaccine. Fair enough. But at the same time, you cannot use that for harm. That there have been many government CDC analyses of vaccine adverse events, and they put people who've been vaccinated but haven't gotten to 14 days into the unvaccinated camp using the same reasoning that it hasn't had a time for the vaccine to become effective. But the hazard happens as soon as you've been randomized. Before you, you when you get in your car to, to go get the vaccine, you're already in the, the vaccine group if for any adverse events. And, and so that's been a major misrepresentation because serious adverse events of the vaccines have largely been within the first four days of after vaccination. And so if the first 14 don't count for being a vaccinated person, then that's putting approximately three quarters of those adverse events into the unvaccinated group in people who've been vaccinated. And so that really misrepresents the data as to 
you know, objective evaluation of safety. So safety and efficacy have to be done totally different on, based on different reasoning. Well, I mean, this is, of course, might be for those that are unfamiliar with this reality, absolutely astonishing, right, that such a designation would be made because it kind of looks like people are trying to hide the harm, right? I, I mean... Uh, well, I agree with you. Yeah. But I think there's been so much misrepresentation, you know, in what public health has done over the last three years that it threw out the principles of public health six days into the pandemic and did the opposite of everything that we knew should be done for respiratory viruses. You know, the fact that public health has been so bad and led to so many bad outcomes for so many people, both dying from COVID and dying from the vaccines and serious adverse events from both because of restricted access to effective early treatment, unnecessary vaccination in people who didn't need it or would have increased risks because they'd had COVID in the past and didn't need, and the vaccines would just increase their risks of adverse events and so on. There's been a whole pile of major misrepresentations through the COVID period by public health that, that has been a colossal failure of public health through this period. You know, to your point, we, uh, my wife and I made the film The Unseen Crisis, looking at how people that have been injured, the documented to have been injured by the vaccines, are often, you know, doctors don't even know what they're looking at because they haven't heard that it's a thing, for starters. And then in some cases, you know, being marked as, you know, some sort of functional disorder, hysteria, and then, you know, once you have that in your chart, it's very difficult for anyone to look take you seriously. This is what we've learned through our research. Um, this whole- That's called medical gaslighting, by the way. That, that assigning a, a, a mental cause to something that says this person is psychologically imbalanced, and that's what we're seeing, rather than an actual functional cause because the doctor didn't know enough and didn't look thoroughly enough to see what was going on and didn't do the right tests, is, is medical gaslighting, in my opinion. Is there any way to disambiguate this data? And that's the, my first question. The second one is, what studies can we do to understand, well, let's start with this turbo cancers phenomenon and then the broader question of, of harms related to genetic vaccines? I, I think it's going to be difficult. The, I, let me do the second question first, that what we know about vaccines causing, being attributable to the cause of death comes largely from autopsy studies where you can prove that the vaccine spike protein was in the organs damaged enough to have caused the demise of, of the vaccinated person. And that was the Hulsher paper that we've been trying to get published that's on Zenodo, I think, at the moment uh, with Dr. McCullough, that showed that 74% of the cases that they were able to attribute to vac vaccination as a cause of death so those autopsy studies provide the data to implicate the spike protein in the damaged organs. That's the link that's necessary. In a turbo cancer, you might not see that because the spike protein might not be in the cancer driving the cancer. The spike protein came and did its damage and left and the immune system failed. And now the cancer has been growing and became so deranged that it's very aggressive. And you know, it's like it, it it did its damage and, and, and went off somewhere else, and so you don't see the telltale trace of, of, of the spike protein in the cancer, and so it's very hard to attribute. So I think that's going to be a much harder question to study. Fascinating. Well, and then to go back to the sort of original question, so with the data that exists today, is it possible to, what, at what level is it possible, or would the effect need to be just so strong of that, of that uh, you know, 
back the the vaccine being connected with the incidence of say the cancer or other harm I think the only way that we'll deal with this has been in the classic epidemiologic methodology, which is to do case control studies where you have, num say we look at colon cancer. So you do a, a study, you sample, try to get everybody in your state who's had colon cancer in, over a, some period of time, and say you collect 2,000 people with colon cancer. And, then, and you get to them as soon as possible and you interview them about their risk factors. And among that, you ask them about whether they were vaccinated and how many times and when. And you, then you get a representative sample of people in the same state, same population, same age range, same genders, distribution, and so on, and ask them the same questions. And you, would, you look for differences in the vaccination status between the cases and the controls, and you adjust for all of the known risk factors for colon cancer because if there's any differences between the cases and controls, those could account for the cancer state, and so you have to account for them and control for them. And that's what we do day in, day out in our our epidemiologic studies, and we know to do that because over the last 40 or 50 years, we've learned a lot about the diseases that we study, and so we know what the major risk factors are, and so we know that we have to measure them and that we have to control for them. And that's the reason why these kinds of studies are just as powerful and objective as randomized trials, if not more so mm. in some cases, as randomized trials for looking at the same kinds of relationships because we're not just fetching in the dark the, 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 you know, these kinds, these kinds of, of, of cancers in 1985, we've learned a lot in, in the intervening years, and so we know how to adjust them to make the studies objective and not biased. And, and so those are the kinds of studies that I think we'll have to do. You know, something that just struck me, if you did a large enough sample size of a study that, that, you, that you just described, you could actually be able to tell to some extent the effect of what would happen if you only categorized someone as being vaccinated two weeks in or something like this? Correct. Right? Yes. Yeah. That, if, so, if people could report on that accurately, yes. Fascinating. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that there, we, we, there are studies to be done that the NIH could be running right now. Um, so what's interesting is this, they, in my opinion, having gotten all these kinds of studies funded over my academic career, that there's a lot of bias as to what gets approved for research in NIH and investigator uh, submitted kind of grant applications. And you have to make them attractive either by having some very novel uh, and non-political hypothesis to be addressed that nobody has ever studied in the past, so there's a reason to collect the, the samples. And it can't be the second study of anything. No second study of anything ever gets funded because it's not novel. Um, there's the novelty fetish, and, um, and it can't be something that radically contradicts prevailing ideas in the epidemiologic and medical community because then they'll say, well, this is obviously not true according to such and such, and why would we want to spend $5 million? And, and these studies are expensive. A typical study like this would cost 5 or $10 million to do, so it, it, and take five years or seven years or whatever. So it's not simple and it's not easy, can be done, takes a lot of work and some good luck on, on basically the way this would be done is by camouflaging the politically charged elements of the study in with something else about why it's interesting to do another case control study of colon cancer, say, that there has to be a novelty factor in that. If you can get that in and get it funded on that basis, everybody adds questions to their questionnaire you know, that you didn't think of at the time you proposed the study. And to do that is not fraud, it's just science evolves and, and normal to do. 
And I'm not advocating that people misrepresent what they're studying, but they have to, to some degree, play the system that's already out there to be effective in actually getting progressive, interesting science done. Hmm. Very interesting. I hope uh, a lot of uh, scientists are watching this episode. Um. It's not going to be solved overnight, even if, if studies get funded. It, it, this will be more difficult to do. I want to switch gears. Um, there's been rumblings of mandates of various types of, you know, let's call it guidance. That's that's what everybody's saying. It is. It was these days, right, uh, around restricting viral spread with these, some of these new variants that are coming out. Um, what's your reaction to that? In what way did any of those recommendations restrict the spread of the previous variants that came out? The answer is none of them did. So um, this, it's fallacious thinking and to, the definition of insanity is when things don't work, just doing the same thing over again, knowing that they didn't work the first time. Um, I think that's where our society is at. Doubling down on the wrong things is even more destructive than it was the first time. But I think a lot of the population is fed up with all of that, is taking COVID in stride, is not going to be um, propagandized into thinking that a virus substrain like BA 2.86 that now has, what, eight cases, 10 cases worldwide, is something that's going to calamitously take over the world in the next month. That's not going to happen. And all of this is propaganda to sell the next batch of vaccines coming out in a few weeks. So people know that. They, they instinctively know that already. They're fed up with this and they're not going to stand for it. And there's going to be a lot more pushback on all this stuff, I think. And uh, we, we've been through these cycles. We were um, naive the first time we went through this as a society. We're not naive now. And that puts them in a very different position of succumbing to things that they don't, didn't want to do the first time but did because they didn't know. Now they don't want to do them and they know that they're not beneficial and they don't work. The safety profile or the safety of these vaccines is, I think it would be fair to say, oversold. Okay. Um, what about these? And the efficacy has also been oversold. What, well, what about the safety and efficacy of these new ones? Uh, we have no information whatsoever. They haven't been tested against really anything in, in humans in an objective way. The first ones uh, were not tested objectively anyway that the safety component was terminated a month after the study ended, so there was no real follow-up. The number of outcome events in the clinical trials was way too small to make the randomization useful. Um, so there was no way to, and when one looks at all-cause mortality in, the, for example, the Pfizer trial, you see that it's comparable. There was 19 in, one, 19 in the placebo group and 20 in, in the drug group or, or the vaccine group or something like that. Um, so that's telling you, even though those numbers are very small, it's not telling you one's bigger than the other because the numbers are too small, but it's telling you there's no obvious signal here that the vaccines are reducing mortality. And there should have been. And so we're, we're stuck with improper and inadequate testing that, that passes for proper testing that the FDA, wink, wink, approves these things. And now the, the latest um, rationale is antibody levels. And everybody knows, scientists know, that antibody levels don't correlate with immunity. That antibody levels rise after you're exposed to an infection, and so does immunity. 
And is it the antibody levels? No, it's the presence of antibodies that matters, at least for a while. And then T cells take over and they matter. And antibodies can last for various periods of time, and same with T cells, but people stay immune. They lose their immunity gradually in, for some diseases. And this is all how the immune system works. You can't measure it you know, with, with uh, antibody levels two weeks or three weeks later. That is not telling you anything about how immune the, the, the individual is. And so you don't, we don't really know about the efficacy of these vaccines, but we do know that <clears throat> they're following the same production as the mRNA, the mod RNA vaccines from all of the first batches, the first go-rounds. And so there's no reason to expect anything different from these. And that's a big hazard because the hazards from the first ones were serious enough that as a society we were damaged by them. My estimate now for serious adverse reactions to the vaccines is about one in 140 people <clears throat> will have a serious adverse reaction. Now, one in 140 says to me, if I were going to choose to be vaccinated, that's so low, it's unlikely to affect me, so I would consider to do it. But if you vaccinate 300 million Americans, one in 140 is still hundreds of thousands of, of people, right? And that's not tolerable for a society where hundreds of thousands of people are not going to be seriously affected or die from what you're trying to prevent, the, the, the COVID infection, especially now in the Omicron era. So the trade-off for a society is wrong even if a, an individual on the same probabilities might choose to take the vaccines. And, and the blurring of that distinction is another one of the frauds in public health that, that we've been through. That saying safe and effective because you only have a one in 140 chance of being harmed is, sounds good to an individual, but it's terrible for the society. So for the typical person that would be asking themselves, you know, with these variants and this kind of vaccine, what we know what you just described, but what, what should they be thinking? Well, my opinion is that nobody should be vaccinated against this anymore with any of these mRNA vaccines. And it remains to be seen what's going to happen going further. But my guess is that the variants that continue to circulate will still be Omicron-like, low level. <clears throat> um, I've heard of a few people being hospitalized from the current variants. They, the hospitalizations have been for a few days. Nobody's been really seriously ill. It hasn't been life-threatening. Um, but been unpleasant, and most people basically have had colds with it. Most people have already had COVID, so they already have some degree of immunity, even to these new uh, subvariants. So there's no reason for people to be vaccinated now to any degree, even people with chronic conditions, they've already been through vaccination and, uh, and or being infected. So it's very rare that, that people like that even would benefit from the new vaccines. A final thought as we finish, Dr. Rish? We thought we were done with COVID in June of this year. The whole country wanted to be done with COVID in June of this year. <clears throat> We've been saying that we were done in January of last year when, when Omicron was already upon us and we knew that it was a flu-like illness and no longer an, an emergency. But nevertheless, the whole society recognized it was time to move on from dealing with this as an emergency and more as just one of the, the infection at noon, um, um, problems uh, of, of modern society, <clears throat> that we live in social contact with each other and therefore spread low-level infections. This part of human life that we take for granted and try to treat the best we can. And that's how we should be managing this. 
and not being forced to freak out by propaganda that all it's doing is the tentacles of the government working as the PR arm of pharma to sell more vaccines. Well, Dr. Harvey Risch, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you. Great to be with you. Hello, everyone. I think we all need a little positivity and inspiration in these turbulent times. And so I would like to introduce a new art store we've set up in partnership with the NTD International Figure Painting Competition. Its mission is pure truth, kindness, and beauty. It's a painting that is peaceful. There's a lot of beauty in it. And you forget about whatever you might be worried about. Both original paintings and reproductions of these beautiful works can be found online at the Inspired Original Shop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to American Thought Leaders Now, our special